Now this morning we're going to be considering many verses. So this would not be our usual message, but rather a Bible study that would help us to understand more of who Christ really is. We want to know everything the Bible has to say about that. God with us. Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Across from our home in Alabama, there stood an old abandoned fire tower up on Beaver Mountain. And we used to love to hike up there and climb up the tower, missing a few steps, but if you were careful, you could make it to the top and you could see not only Shoal Creek Valley, but you could see Beaver Valley over the mountain. And it gave me a little bit of insight into the omnipresence of God. God knows what's going on here this morning in this church, and He knows what's going on in every church in town, in every church in the world that's meeting together today. He even knows what's going on in the dark. Now sometimes I'm down in the valley, and I'm looking up to the fire tower, and I'm thinking, hey Lord, I need some help down here. There's a fire breaking out, and I really need you to send me down some help and get this done, get this taken care of. And sometimes it seems like he's not paying attention to what I am saying. But I can assure you that he knew about the fire before the foundation of the world. And he may have possibly even sent the fire. Or if it's an evil fire, he allowed the fire. So he knows his purposes for the fire. Sometimes it's a refining fire to refine my gold and silver having passed through the fire. But as I'm thinking about calling up to God in the fire tower, it's really not a fire tower. It's a control tower. He's in control of everything that transpires. And instead of just sending me down some help, He did something much better than that. He sent the second person of the Trinity to come down into the valley to be by my side and by your side and help us with the challenges and trials and afflictions that we face here. All the fires that may be burning. And then, after 33 years, Jesus Christ ascended back to heaven, but He sent His Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. He was around, but at Pentecost we get a fuller package of the Spirit. And Jesus' Spirit now dwells within us as we're the temple of His Spirit. And He guides us and He gives us wisdom and direction and understanding and comfort and insight into the Word and all of those good things. So today we want to talk about this second person of the Trinity coming down to this earth to live as a man. And I would remind you that Satan has a devious plan for all people. And it's to hold them in confusion with regard to Jesus, who He is, 
and what he came to do. And there is much confusion, even in Texas, even in the United States, with regard to Jesus Christ and who he is and what he does. So next Sunday, we will complete 3 o'clock, the Incarnation. But today, we want to take a look at this Bible doctrine of Jesus Christ known as Christology. Jesus is fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. We might say two what's, a divine what or nature, and a human what or nature, but only one who, a single self or person. Now we can't understand that, and I can't explain that to you, but I can't explain to you how God could create the world out of nothing. But I believe that He did, because He tells us that He did. And that He can create a clean heart in the heart of men who turn to Him in repentance and true saving faith. So it is miraculous, but if we have a miraculous God, we could expect miraculous things. And if God can only do some things, basically what men can do, what kind of God would that be? Kind of like some of the ancient Greek gods who just run around acting like men, getting drunk and lust and various things. No, that's not the God that we have, that we know, the God of Scripture. So we ask a question, why was it necessary for the second person of the Trinity to become a human being? As C.S. Lewis aptly stated, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Now here are some reasons that I would suggest why the second person of the Trinity had to become a human being. And the first is Christ had to be both God and man so that he could be the mediator between us and God. We see in 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Christ represents us, and he represents God. And he had to be both God and man in order to fully accomplish that. The second reason why he had to become a human being. Christ had to be human in order to represent sinners in his redemptive work. You remember Adam represented us to begin with, but he failed as our representative. Now we turn to an obedient and successful representative for a new humanity. And in Romans 5.18 we see that, therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Now the many, in this case, means the whole comprised of many. And you can see in verse 18 that he's talking about all men. Because of Adam's sin, all men came into condemnation. But now we have another human, Christ, who is going to act as our representative. 
doing a much better job than did Adam. Then number three, Christ had to be human so as to be our equal, our example, and the pattern for how we ought to live our lives. And we see that in 1 Peter 2, and let me encourage you to mark this verse in your Bible. This is a very important passage. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth, who, when He was reviled, did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but committed Himself to Him who judges righteously." Christ faced all kinds of opposition, all kinds of challenges, but He entrusted Himself to Him who judges righteously. He didn't threaten. He didn't try to straighten everyone out that couldn't be straightened out. Many didn't have ears to hear, including a lot of the Pharisees. He gave a lot of good teaching, but a lot of people didn't listen to it. Hey, let me encourage you. When you go on a crusade to eradicate all the evil in the land like Elijah did, it didn't work for Elijah. A great contest against the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, but then the land didn't turn to Christ in national revival. And Elijah was very dismayed about it. And he went up to Mount Horeb and hid himself in a cave. Well, it's great to go on evangelistic and evangelistic crusade, but leave the results to God. We ought to be sharing the gospel, and that's what we want to do. But don't get discouraged if people don't accept what you have to say. If the Holy Spirit's working in their heart, they will accept it. But you and I may entrust ourselves to Him who judges justly. And that covers everything that happens on this earth. Number four, Christ had to be divine so He could be a perfect sacrifice of infinite value, bearing the wrath of God for us. Now we see those words and we say, well, what does that mean? Well, we'll try to explain it. In John 5.18, we see, For this cause, therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because He was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. I will assure you there was no question in the minds of those in Jesus' day as to what he was saying. Making himself equal with God. Now, when Abraham came to sacrifice Isaac, you remember? That was a picture of the father sacrificing the son like God the Father sacrificed His Son. But right at the last minute, there was a ram provided for Abraham. And he didn't have to sacrifice his son. That was just an illustration for us. Now my question is, why don't we just stick with the sheep? Why couldn't God take away the sins of the world through the sacrifice of a sheep? No remission of sin without the shedding of blood. But the sacrifice of that sheep was just a picture, just a shadow of something that was coming. And here's the reason I think that wouldn't work. We're told in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, salvation is from the Lord. 
Salvation is not from the sheep. Salvation is from the Lord. And every lamb that was sacrificed pointed to the perfect lamb of God, a perfect sacrifice of infinite value. He could represent us because he was man. He could bring that sacrifice to God and appease his wrath in our place because he was God, the second person of the Trinity. Hebrews chapter 2, for indeed he does not give aid to the angels, their condition is already fixed, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be divine. He had to be human. And finally, Christ had to be human so that he could sympathize with our weakness. And this is encouraging to me and should be to everyone here. If you're not facing anything that would cause you to realize your weakness, well, sooner or later, there probably will be something. So Hebrews 2.18, For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Now that brings up a question. How could Jesus be tempted if He is God? We're told in Scripture that when tempted, we should say, we should, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is dragged away and enticed by his own lust. How could Jesus really feel temptation if he was impeccable, if he was not able to sin? How could we say then that he was tempted? Here's the answer, and I think it relates to number three that we looked at, Jesus, our example and pattern. Jesus never once relied on his divine nature to perform any act of righteousness that he performed. Everything he did, he depended on the Father and, of course, the Spirit who was coming to him to empower him to do the things that he did. This is the reason that Jesus was always out on the mountain somewhere praying. We need to see that in Scripture. If he needed prayer, I need prayer because he was living the Christian life in the power and style in which we are supposed to live it. So he was out there all the time, sometimes praying all night, sometimes early in the morning. And what was the temptation that the devil brought? To step out of his humanity and back into his divinity and start doing magic tricks and jump off the temple pinnacle and all these kind of things that God could do. But Jesus did everything He did in the same power that is available to us. Now, I wouldn't say that we know everything that He knew, and yet we know everything we need to know because we have everything to equip us for life and for godliness. Here is a brochure from Moody Press, Moody Bible Institute, and it says the spirit of truth versus the spirit of error. 
and it's a comparison of seven, seven different religions in seven different points of doctrine. Christian science, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, unity, theosophy, some various ones. And if we took time to read through that, there is much confusion with regard to the person of Jesus Christ. Some people think that he was a man and that uh, he just was an ordinary man. Some people think he was God in a man's suit and the crucifixion really wouldn't hurt him because you can't hurt God. There are all kind of strange ideas about who Christ was. But this morning, we want to take a look at what the Bible says. And I believe that unless you have a picture of who Jesus is, you can't really be saved because His redemptive work is going to depend on who He is. And that's the reason we're looking at these points of doctrine because some people say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe. He's a man or He's God. It doesn't matter. You just believe in Jesus or you just believe in God. No, it does matter as we will see as we are looking through some of the Scriptures here. Now, before we get to the Scripture... The Council of Chaldean met in 451 A.D. in a little uh, town of Chalcedon in Bithynia, Asia Minor. And they were having some struggles in the church then with uh, Jesus Christ and who He is and what He did. And so they issued this statement. Let me give it to you quickly. We all with one voice confess our Lord Jesus Christ to be one and the same Son, perfect in divinity and humanity, truly God and truly human consisting of a rational soul and body, being of one substance with the Father in relation to His divinity, and being of one substance with us in relation to His humanity, and is like us in all things apart from sin. He was begotten of the Father before time in relation to His divinity, and in these recent days was born of a Virgin Mary for us and for our salvation. In relation to the humanity, He is one and the same Christ, the Son, the Lord, the only begotten, who is to be acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. The distinction of natures is in no way abolished on account of this union, but rather the characteristic property of each nature is preserved, and concurring into one person and one subsistence, not as if Christ were parted or divided into two persons but remains one and the same Son and only begotten Word, Lord, God, Jesus Christ. Even as the prophets from the beginning spoke concerning Him and our Lord Jesus instructed us and the creed of the fathers was handed down to us. Now we don't often read through these statements of the creed, but when you do, you can see that those men gave careful thought to what the Scripture had to say and wrote it down in such a form that it has served the church well even to today. Now quickly, let's conclude with some scriptural evidence for the deity of Christ. And we're going to go through these pretty quickly. So we begin with the names of Christ. The names of God were used to refer to Jesus Christ. At least 16 divine names are assigned to Christ. He's called the Son of God 40 times. God refers to Him as my Son in Matthew 3.17, there at the baptism. Five times He's called the only begotten Son of God, 
One of those is in John 3.18. I've only listed one or maybe two scriptures of the numbers that are available. In Revelation 1, 11, and 17, he's referred to as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. What was there in, before the beginning? Only God. What will be there after the end? Only the triune God, His chosen angels, and ourselves. Those of us who have put our faith and trust in Him. In Acts 3.14, Peter refers to Jesus as the Holy One. The term Lord is used several hundred times in the New Testament, referring to Jesus. The New Testament Greek word kurios is a translation of the Old Testament word Jehovah. And it was used in the Septuagint translation from Greek, from the Hebrew into Greek, 200 years before Christ was even born. There were many prophecies concerning the Lord. And then in the New Testament, Christ fulfills those prophecies. He's called the Lord of glory in 1 Corinthians 2, 8. In John 20, 28, Thomas comes to Jesus, bows down, sees the scars in his hands and where the sword, the spear has pierced his side, and he bows down and says, my Lord and my God. Now, what did Jesus do? Oh, don't, don't, don't say that. Uh, that might be going a little bit too far. No, he accepted that title and that worship from Thomas. Titus 2.13, mark this one in your Bible, because this is the one that you want to go to. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. won't take time to read through the whole thing, but that's one to have along with John 1, Hebrews 1, and Colossians 1. Romans 9.5 Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all God, blessed forever. Amen. Quickly, another one, the attributes of God. Sovereignty, authority, immutability, life in Himself. Omniscience. Hebrews 1.3 Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, upholding all things by the word of His power when He had by Himself purged our sin, sat down at the right hand of the throne of, of, of the majesty on high. If you're going to uphold all things by the word of your power, you've got to know all things, and He did. Omnipresence. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. We're gathered here. What if there are some people gathered over in China this morning? He's there too. He is everywhere. Christ showed that He was there with Nathaniel before He even met Nathaniel, and other occasions as well. Eternity. And the verse is John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now Christ functions as God. For instance, in creation, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And there are some other verses that state the very same thing. Jesus forgave sin. Four men brought a buddy to Jesus who was a paralytic. And Jesus, when He saw their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And the Pharisees knew exactly what the implications of that statement were. And then judgment. John 5.22, For not even the Father judges anyone 
but He has given all judgment to the Son in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. If we don't know really who Christ is, how may we honor Him? And how may we give the honor due uh, as what, according to what we read in Colossians chapter 1? Statements made distinctly of Jehovah in the Old Testament are ascribed to Christ. In Isaiah 8, we talk about a rock, a stone over which to stumble, a rock to strike, a stone to strike, a rock to stumble over. The verse begins, verse 13, it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. Now in the New Testament, we see Peter referring to that stone, that choice stone, the cornerstone. It is Christ. And Peter is quoting another passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 28, 16. And it says the same thing as what Peter is quoting here in the New Testament. The stone, of course, is the Lord. And then when Jesus Christ comes, He fulfills that prophecy. He is the cornerstone. Number five, the names of God and Christ are coupled together. And we see that everywhere in the New Testament. Matthew 28, 19. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's the Trinity. It would be nice if we could just go to a verse that says, let us introduce you to the Trinity. And here is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But it's not presented that way in the New Testament. We have to look at everything the Bible says and then put it together. Number six, excuse me, another verse here. Interesting verse that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That sounds like worship to me. But we only worship one God. Listen to this, Isaiah 45, 21. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced from old and who has declared it? Is it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and Savior, there is none except me. Turn to me all the earth and be saved, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. And that is said of Christ in the New Testament. Number seven, specific claims to deity. Jesus said to a group one day, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And he took the name of God that God had given when he appeared to Moses at the burning bush, and all the Pharisees knew exactly what he was talking about, and they began to see the steam rising there because they understood he was claiming to be God. Excuse me, let's go back to number 14.9. Jesus said to him, have I been so long time with you, Philip, and yet have you not come to know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say then, show us the Father? And then the virgin birth. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, we're told in Matthew 1.20. And it's a fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah 7.14. Therefore the Lord Himself 
will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, there are a lot of criticisms of that verse, and it's an interesting study, but I believe it's exactly what Matthew said it was in Matthew 1.20. And then in Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The little baby is going to be called Gibor El, the Mighty God. And that same name of God is used just in the next chapter in Isaiah. And you can see that it's only referring to the mighty God. Now let's quickly shift to the scriptural evidence for the humanity of Christ. And we begin where we left off, the virgin birth. He was born of a woman. And you know the Christmas story. Uh, Mary brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. There was no room for them in the inn. The names assigned to Christ in the New Testament. The Son of Man is used over 80 times in the Scripture. And next Sunday, we're going to take a look at that term, Son of Man. That comes out of the Old Testament. We're going to see a fulfillment of prophecy. Why did Matthew refer to Jesus most often as the Son of Man? many other names that we will consider. Jesus had a human nature. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us in John 1.14. Hebrews 2.14, As much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, He Himself likewise shared in the same, that through death He might destroy Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus experienced growth and development just like a little boy. Uh, you can remember in Luke 2.40, the child grew, became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Luke 2.52, Jesus grew and increased in wisdom, stature, favor with God, favor with man. How could that be? How could a little baby be God and he could be learning things just like any baby learns things? I don't know exactly how that is, but it is because the Scripture tells us that it is. Number five, he had limitations of knowledge. Jesus said, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. He limited himself in some ways. He had physical limitations. In John 4, 6, he is weary. Matthew 4, 38, he goes to sleep in the back of the boat from weariness. In Mark eleven twelve, he sees a fig tree. He says he's hungry. Unfortunately, the tree didn't have any figs. And then in John 19, on the cross, he is thirsty. And many more. These are just a sampling of his humanity. And then number seven, temptation. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Prayer. If Jesus is God... Why does he need to pray? Well, he needs to pray to set an example for us, plus he's living the life in the power of the Spirit. Mark, excuse me, I'm going too fast here. Mark 135, now in the morning, Jesus went out to a solitary place and there prayed, and there had been a big revival meeting the night before. 
And everybody had come back looking for him the next morning. But he knew he needed to pray, so he went out to pray. Number nine, need of power. In Acts 10, verse 38, we see here how God appointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Do you remember when Christ went out into the wilderness and he was tempted and he was there? meditating, praying, whatever he was doing. And it says, and he returned with power in the Holy Spirit and began his public ministry. Human emotions, joy, sorrow, compassion, weeping, astonishment, anger, loneliness, many other emotions, the emotions of a human. And then human in every respect. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a faithful, merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus is a glorified man in heaven today, and will be so at the time of his return. He is also God, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's only one person with a human nature and a divine nature. And we close with Hebrews 4 and verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession, our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And I would encourage you as we participate in the Lord's Supper that you would join with me to come boldly to His throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. As the men are preparing the elements, uh, turn over in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you will. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And it begins in verse 17, and we're not going to read this. This is a very familiar passage. But if you look in verses 24, 25, 26, 27, and 28, you see the purpose of the Lord's Supper. We take a backward look toward the cross. That's what we're doing, is remembering the cross and Christ's crucifixion. The Lord's Supper serves as an inward look toward our conscience. Verse 28, let every man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink the cup. And it serves as a forward look toward the crown. No crown without the cross, it's been said. And in verse 26, the last part of the verse, as often as you drink, eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. He is coming back again. So let's bow for prayer and let's ask God's guidance as we look to Him and participate in this ordinance. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank You for this amazing miracle that Your Son, the Lord Jesus, would leave His throne of glory and come to this earth. Not only that, but He would suffer and die for us 
so that any pain, any sorrow, any affliction that we may bear, He knows about that. And He knows how to comfort our hearts. We thank You for that. And as we participate now together in the Lord's table, we pray that Your Spirit would be very near. We pray that we might examine our hearts. We ask that we might be quick to confess anything wrong that we see there. And we pray that we might be enlivened by this means of grace that you have appointed. And we ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. We'll now pass out the bread. We've seen the purpose of the Lord's Supper, and now we come to the pattern that night as they were celebrating the fat Passover feast. At one point in the evening, Jesus took some bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. And I want us to bow in prayer as we give thanks. And this morning, let's take just a time of silent prayer and give thanks to God for anything that's on your heart this evening. We talked about rejoicing evermore, pray without ceasing, and giving thanks in all things. So let's bow our heads and give thanks uh, this morning. We want to thank you, Lord Jesus, for establishing this reminder for us that no matter what is happening in this life, we have been redeemed because of your atonement on the cross. No matter what happens to this body, our bodies have been redeemed. And we thank you for what took place there on Calvary, at which time your body was broken. We thank you for that sacrifice that you made for us. And our hearts are joined together in great thanksgiving that you have not only redeemed us from hell, you have redeemed us from sin so that we may follow you according to the image that you have given during your life here on this earth. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Jesus then said, This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And now we'll pass out the cup. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your amazing grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for shedding your blood to wash away our sin. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for empowering us to live the life that you have called us to live. Lord, it's usually not a pleasant experience when we have to shed some blood. So when we think about what you went through, our hearts are filled with gratitude. We pray, Lord, that we might see what you have done for us and the salvation that you have achieved 
that we might see that continually as a backdrop in everything that is taking place in our lives. And we pray that we might truly be able to rejoice always because of what you have done for us. We are so grateful. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. And Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant between God and man, and it is sealed with my blood. And when you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Shall we partake together? Now we come to a time of prayer. And I want to ask Tony Pradia if he would come and lead us as we would call upon our men, our young men, to pray. We have a lot of things about which to pray, so as the Lord leads you, there's a microphone in the back so that everyone might be able to hear. And uh, Tony, if you would come lead us, please.